Hey y'all, it's Brittany. So this past weekend, one of my dreams came true. No, I did not sing with Beyonce. Hopefully that's coming. I was a guest on Finding Your Roots. So nerd out with me for a moment, if you will. That's the PBS show where each week they research a person's ancestry. So I got to tape a whole session with host and famed historian Henry Louis Gates Jr. And this past Saturday, I got my reveal. Now, my episode won't air for a while, so I can't legally tell you about the incredible, stunning, life-changing discoveries they made about my family yet. But let's just say I have been floating on clouds 9, 10, and 11 ever since. I feel suddenly connected to everything that came before me in a profoundly real way. I honestly can't believe I got the gift of starting off Black History Month this way. I mean, I have this newfound ability to actually call out my ancestors by name. It has been so emotional. I've gone through several boxes of tissues in the past few days, and the tears keep coming. Being able to place yourself and your people in the broad themes of history is, well, it's more meaningful than I could have even imagined. So many Black people in this country have to walk around without the knowledge of our lineage. You know, it's interesting. One of my pod colleagues, Treasure Brooks, wondered if perhaps this lack of knowledge is why our community feels so much ownership over our elders. People like our now dearly departed Queen Mother, Cicely Tyson. When we didn't know our lineage, the Oscar, Emmy, and Tony award-winning actress was it. When we had empty spaces, she and the stories she told filled them. We often call our stars auntie and mama because they give us connection, a feeling of family, even and especially when our own DNA ties may be missing. So rest in power, Queen Sicily. As poet Gwendolyn Brooks once said, we are each other's harvest. We are each other's business. We are each other's magnitude and bond. Y'all, we get the chance to celebrate Black history every day by making sure we keep making it. We are undistracted. On the show today, the Raquel Willis. I'll be talking to the activist and writer about the struggle for transgender rights in America and the importance of building pathways to leadership for Black trans women. Black trans people often amongst ourselves fill our power, but don't necessarily really feel like other people see our power, see our potential. That's coming up, but first, it's your Untrending News. On Tuesday evening, as y'all might have heard, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez opened up in a powerful, candid Instagram Live video. So, trigger warning, she shared her trauma surrounding the Capitol riot. The Congresswoman describes her experience of events, how she had to hide for her life as an aggressive white man broke into her office and repeatedly yelled, Where is she? And this was the moment I thought, Everything was 
over. I mean, I thought I was going to die. It turned out that man was a Capitol Police officer, but he didn't identify himself as such. AOC also bravely shared that she is a survivor of sexual assault, which made the trauma of the riot all the more triggering for her. And here's the piece you don't want to miss. These folks who are just trying to tell us to move on are just like pulling the page. They're using the same tactics of every other abuser who just tells you to move on. We need accountability. I have so much admiration for AOC. First of all, because she's right. She and other members of Congress saw their workplace attacked. All of them were the subjects of an assault. These invaders even called for their execution. And now, just like survivors of other kinds of assaults, they're being told they're hysterical and just have to move on? Absolutely, unequivocally, no. We will not move on. And my hometown Congresswoman Cori Bush has called for the expulsion of members of Congress who incited this mess. So sign your name in support of her bill at actionnetwork.org. So the vaccine rollout is underway, but new data is showing that only 5% of vaccines have gone to Black Americans and only 11% to Latinx folks. That's according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. So far, we only have racial and ethnic data for about half of the vaccine doses given, but these numbers are incredibly alarming. The data shows that even in blue states and cities that claim to be addressing racial health disparities, white residents are still getting vaccinated at twice the rate of black residents. Dr. Esther Chu warned us about this right here on the show back in December. The people first in line are going to be people who are doing pretty well in the pandemic to begin with. You know, mm. so it's going to be wealthier people. It's going to be people in communities that are very well resourced. It's not going to be people of color. Researchers say one reason is just figuring out the system for getting an appointment. I certainly haven't figured it out. And I'm someone with resources for understanding the system. It's also been reported that some wealthy white folks have been heading to low income communities of color to take their doses. I kid you not. There has been much ado about the propensity of Black folks to be distrustful of the medical system, and that distrust is valid. But that conversation can actually serve to scapegoat Black folks. Bree Newsom has been saying this left and right, and we ought to listen. The onus should be put on the government to figure out the central question of access. Black people are trying to survive, and that includes taking the vaccine. If they can't get it, the fault ain't with the people, it's with the system. Finally, Mia Dennis has broken the internet again. You may recall the 21-year-old UCLA gymnast went viral last year with her Beyonce-inspired performance. And once again, she has outdone herself with a new floor routine celebrating Black culture. On Twitter, she's already racked up more than 10 million views. Nia's new routine features music from Beyonce, obviously, and also Kendrick Lamar, Tupac, Missy Elliott, and Megan The Stallion. No elevator music here, all right? Yo, Nia is incredible. She crip walks, she heel toes, and she does a split in midair. I can't even do a split on the ground, my God. Although Nia has earned much praise and a score of 9.95 out of 10, there's been some backlash. There's been some backlash. I almost said blacklash. That sounds like a Freudian slip. You already know how this goes. There were comments like, why does it have to be black excellence? And leave race out of the gym, please. 
Listen, I'll tell y'all why. Until recently, women's gymnastics has been almost all white. It was really difficult being so, literally so different from everybody to always be constantly told you weren't good enough because you don't fit into those typical styles of gymnastics, which is so cookie cutter. <laughs> you keep killing it, Nia. It also reminds me of how my friend Stevie Hey Girl is always quick to remind us that Surya Bonnelly, the black French figure skater, was banned back in the 80s from doing her signature backflip during the Olympics. Black excellence, it just scares the piss out of some folks. That's what it really comes down to. But Nia, you get all the fire emojis from over here. We love you, girl. Coming up, I'll be talking to activist and writer Raquel Willis about working to empower Black trans women right after this short break. And we are back. So it still brings me chills when I think back to the March for Black Trans Lives that took place in Brooklyn last June. My guest today was one of the organizers of that rally, the largest action in history for trans folks. Yes, Raquel Willis stood in front of a crowd of 15,000 people, and she spoke brilliantly from her heart. We have been told that we are not enough to parents, to family, to lovers, to Johns, to organizations, to schools, to our government, to the world. And the truth is, is that we're more than enough. Oh, I love that. It's true. Black trans people are more than enough. Yet even though President Biden has signed some new protections for LGBTQ people, reversing some of the harm that was done by Trump, there's still a slew of anti-trans legislation being proposed, especially at the state level. And of course, the lived reality for trans and gender not conforming folks is still incredibly dangerous, especially for black trans women. So what can we do about it? Raquel Willis has some thoughts. <laughs> As a writer, an editor, and a media strategist, she's worked for the Transgender Law Center, the Ms. Foundation, and Out Magazine, where in 2019, she published the Trans Obituaries Project to highlight the epidemic of violence against trans women of color. I always love hearing what Raquel has to say, whether it's on a stage or in conversation, and I know that you will too. Raquel, thank you so much for joining us. I'm so excited to talk to you. Thank you for having me. It's so great to be on. So before we talk about this new administration, I actually want to go back to last summer. You stood on the balcony of the Brooklyn Museum and you spoke so powerfully to a massive crowd. What was going through your mind at that moment as you, you know, stepped out onto the stage? That day, I really was just trying to settle myself. I was trying to stay fully present and just show up as my most vulnerable and authentic self. And I was listening so intently to everything that my sisters and siblings were saying, just feeling all of their energy from Miss Kyan Dora show of Glitz Inc. to Ian Field Stewart of the Okra Project and so many more. And then just looking out into the audience, I mean, the sheer amount of folks who showed up, folks who looked like us and folks who didn't. You know, there were yeah. there was a multiracial 
congregation, I guess you could say, for <laughs> us. And I just settled myself. I mean, I, I did a silent kind of meditation where I kind of called on the power of the ancestors, called on the souls of the Black trans people that we had lost in 2020 and before, and just tried to let it rip as best as I could. <laughs> you, as we say, did that. I mean, the part for me was when you led that entire congregation, as you call it. I love that. I believe in my power. I believe in my power. I believe in your power. I believe in our power. I believe in our power. I believe in black trans Thank you. I believe in Black trans power. What do you want the rest of us to get from that phrase? Yeah, you know, I as I was going up to speak, and there's this moment where I'm just kind of holding on to the rail for dear life because it was just like, that was all the energy that I had left was like in my <laughs> voice, right? So my mm. body could barely hold me up from just like the nerves of that moment. But I really was trying to figure out what was I going to say? What was I going to say? I mean, for me, the importance of storytelling is always so key. And I wanted to figure out what hits, what works. And and power just felt like the right word. Yeah. In an era where obviously we had this fascist in chief who was trying to disempower people on the margins in so many different ways continuously, right? It felt important to lean into that because Black trans people often amongst ourselves feel our power, but don't necessarily really feel like other people see our power, see our potential for Mm. crafting a world of liberation. I also, it was kind of uh, an unconscious moment, but also was channeling words from someone like Sylvia Rivera back in the 70s where she's yelling about how she believes in the gay power. I think some of that crept in that day as well for me. But I wanted folks who weren't necessarily Black, weren't necessarily trans, to understand that you don't have to be Black and trans to understand our power and understand our potential. That's what happens when the ancestors are just right there with you, perfectly aligned. Absolutely. <laughs> and, you know, you you talk about us being in this era, this moment of having a fascist in charge. You know, I, I hate to ask you to revisit it, but I don't want us to skip over just how much damage was done by the Trump presidency because the last four years have really not been kind to trans people. Can you walk us through some of what had to be faced? The things that LGBTQ folks face, and especially trans people, kind of ended up being a footnote in comparison to some of the other fights that seem to loom even larger. You know, the fights for folks who are immigrants who were being held in ICE, you know, those stories Mm -hmm. were so moving. And still, the stories of trans people who were being held in ICE were not really told. I remember the same mm. week that Laylene Polanco, an Afro-Latina, died in Rikers' custody, was also the same week that 
a Latina immigrant, uh, Joanna Medina, died in ICE custody. Mm. I think some of the other fights that we don't talk about enough were health and human services. Not only, obviously, was the Trump administration trying to roll back the Affordable Care Act, but also trying to make it difficult for people who are trans or queer to access the things that they need in terms of health care. Of course, there was the trans military ban, which, you know, I, I, for me, obviously, as a Black trans activist, I'm not interested in, in trying to advocate necessarily for folks to expand the imperialistic mm. reach of uh, the U.S. government. But I do know that those moments where him and his administration were attacking trans military service members was a signal to folks in other sectors of employment to discriminate against trans people. That's right. GLAD's Trump Accountability Project recorded 180 anti-LGBTQ statements and actions in the four years of that presidency. So we've got that era. I want to talk a little bit about what you expect and what you are pushing for from the Biden-Harris administration. I mean, President Biden, he has pledged to be a friend of the LGBTQ community. He called trans equality the civil rights issue of our time. They promised to undo a lot of the harms of the last four years. For starters, how do you think they're doing so far? Yeah, well, you know, I want to push back just a little bit on that characterization of trans rights being the civil rights issue of our time, because I actually think it ignores the rich history of trans activism and organizing. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, when I think about the Marsha P. Johnsons or the Sylvia Rivera's and even yeah. figures from centuries ago, I would imagine that it would feel weird for someone to tell them that transgender rights was the civil rights issue of this time when they were mm. already doing that work, you know? So I, I yeah. want to lay that bare. But I, I think when it comes to the Biden administration, I mean, there's so many opportunities, of course, to see trans people in leadership. Um, but that is just the representational piece. And so we've got to figure out how to move beyond just seeing a trans person in power who oftentimes are still white trans people, let's be clear, and moving into what action really looks like and the lived realities of trans people in their everyday lives. And so I think it is important for us to be looking at the Equality Act, which I know the Biden-Harris administration has really touted. But I think we also have to look at when we talk about immigration and, and reform in that space, that is a trans rights issue, you know, because mm -hmm. we have trans immigrants. When we look at criminal justice work and, and kind of the shifts that we need to see there, whether, you know, you're on the side of reform or on the side of abolition for any of these different systems, those are still trans rights fights, right? So we can't ignore that trans people are caught up in all those other fights as well. Absolutely. So, okay, since he became president, Biden has overturned the trans military ban. You just mentioned that. Obviously, it is a highly nuanced conversation. But he's also signed an executive order promising to uphold LGBTQ rights. He's nominated Dr. Rachel Levine, a trans woman who, we should say, is white, to be his assistant health secretary. So it's a start. But there is still so much 
harm being threatened, especially by Republicans in state houses. There are currently at least 14 states proposing anti-LGBTQ bills. And what strikes me is that many of them are really targeting trans youth specifically. So can you just walk us through what's really happening here? You probably heard about the fights in terms of blocking access for trans students to participate in school sports, right? That's one of the Mm -hmm. biggest ones where they're trying to make it so that trans masculine students can't play sports with other masculine students and vice versa. Trans feminine students can't play sports with other uh, feminine identified students. And we have to really engage with that and not just tell these students, oh, well, you have to sit out. We're not going to find space for you. I think the other pieces, too, are around the healthcare front. For years, a lot of conservatives have been trying to make it so that trans youth wouldn't even have access to even consider a kind of medical transition. And a lot of times there's a lot of misinformation that's put out there that people are advocating for the most involved um, procedures at a young age. And that isn't necessarily true. Most people actually are really just trying to access things like hormone blockers to delay a kind of traditional puberty experience so that they can navigate it on their own terms, right? But if we don't even allow physicians to fully assess a given person's experience in terms of their health, we're really kind of damning these trans youth to really violent, I think, outcomes, right? And ones where there's very little hope for the futures that they deserve. For sure. I mean, Montana just approved a bill known as the Save Women's Sports Act, That's quite a misnomer, uh, because as you mentioned, it would bar trans student athletes from competing on the teams that will match with their gender identity. But even if bills like this don't pass into law, they can still harm trans young people. The stigmatization is just one of the ways that this harm happens. Absolutely. So why are these transphobic bullies who happen to be elected officials and sit in seats of legislative power continuing to focus so heavily in coming after trans youth? Yeah, well, you know, I think the thing that conservatives have sharpened their skills on is is tackling fear and targeting fear. And so when it comes to LGBTQ youth, period, whether you're trans or gay or lesbian, bi, whatever, is... There are a lot of people who may otherwise be affirming but are afraid because of the world that we live in that still has so much discrimination that their children would be a target, right? And so one of the ways that a lot of folks try to limit that targeting is to say, oh, well, you don't know who you are yet, so Mm. just hold off, right? Just hold off on being your most authentic self because the world isn't ready. So this targeting is continuing, even though we know there have been incredibly powerful strides, especially in media, right? We we know that there has been more visibility gained in film and television of trans people, but that doesn't mean that reality is not still deeply dangerous. We know from the human rights campaign that at least 43 trans or gender nonconforming people were killed in the U.S. last year and that 91% of those reported were Black women. Mm-hmm. This cannot be allowed to continue. What 
has to be done to prevent these tragedies, these murders? You know, one of the things that was so powerful for me, particularly back in 2019, was working on the Trans Obituaries Project and being mm. able to to craft this 13-point framework on how we can end the epidemic of violence. We already have seen a few uh, particularly Black and Brown trans folks murdered already in 2021. And I know that a lot of the solutions on the federal level are caught up in how do we get people prosecuted and brought into the criminal justice system. But mm -hmm. I think as a Black person, that isn't actually a solution that I think enriches our communities and changes things. So I want to see how they are going to get more resources and funding to organizations and organizers on the ground who are coming up with these solutions every day. Yeah. And you, of course, helped create the Trans Obituaries Project that you just talked about to really honor those trans women and trans people who have been reported as victims of violence with the obituaries that they really deserve. Yeah. You know, I, I think one of the pieces of that storytelling power and that political education that needs to happen is understanding that trans people aren't just floating off, isolated from the rest of humanity. Mm -hmm. You know, when you see a trans person, you are seeing their loved ones too. I got a mama that worries about me every day, mm -hmm. honey. I got a sister <laughs> and a brother. I got nieces and nephews who I, I hear in my head calling me, Auntie Raquel, Auntie Raquel, you know, <laughs> almost every day, you know, so... That's my family. And I think a lot of times in our society, we don't consider that trans people have lives, have loved ones, have family, have partners, have parents that want to make sure that we're safe. And so so we've got to consider the humanity of the Black trans experience as well. So speaking of making sure that we envelop all of trans people's humanity in these conversations. You have talked about wanting to, and I quote, support an expansive new vision of feminism that elevates the experiences of trans people. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, that is the whole dream. So what does this new vision look like? Yeah, you know, I think the new vision, particularly in the feminist space, is reckoning with our history. So if we can consider that some of those early suffragists were white supremacists as hell, then mm -hmm. we also need to be able to consider that there has often been a trans-misogynistic underpinning to larger mm -hmm. feminist fights as well. And so what's important now is for folks to reckon with that. It is a problem that we see public figures like J.K. Rowling or even to a lesser extent, a, a Chimamanda Adichie who espouse misinformation about trans women and try to pit trans women against cis women. You know, yes, trans experiences and cis experience often are very different. A lot of times there's more to connect than otherwise, but 
yes, they can be different. That does not mean that our experiences as women are less valid or more valid than any other group of women. And for me, it's about tapping into, again, some of that ancestral power of like a Sojourner Truth or Anna Mm. Julia Cooper, who were saying the same things as Black women to white women in a time when they weren't quite ready to hear it. This is kind of where I think a lot of trans women and trans folks are in terms of trying to talk to cis women about this feminist fight and this fight for gender justice. I also always try to remind my cis sisters that harming trans women, not only is it not right, it doesn't make cis women any more free. Like this is, that's not actually how, (laughs) that's not how freedom works. Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah, this zero sum game is not serving any of us well. You've talked a a bit through this conversation, and I've heard you talk about it so many times, really about the power, though, of what the ancestors have meant to you and have meant on your journey. I mean, you talked about it when you were up on stage at the Black Trans Rally. The spirit of Marsha and Sylvia and the spirit of Remy and Raya and the spirit of Tony and the spirit of our dear sister Laylene. I know you've talked about it, you know, in your own growing up in Augusta, Georgia. uh, You said that being a Black trans woman was not really on the menu of options. So can you talk a little bit more about how Black trans women, the elders and the ancestors have really guided you on this path? You know, I think one of the most beautiful things about being trans or, or being queer in general is considering ancestry from a more expansive lens. And so I'm from Augusta, Georgia, like you said, Southern girl. And I live in Brooklyn now. So I I call myself a Georgia peach in the Big Apple. But, (laughs) you know, when I consider Augusta and my kind of biological lineage there, my family really on both sides is from that kind of Georgia, South Carolina area going back a good 150 to 200 years. But the other part of that, too, is that there is a spiritual lineage that connects me to other queer and trans folks throughout history that Mm. I, I had to seek out their stories because it wasn't readily available. So I think about, you know, I've said a few times, the Marsha P. Johnsons, the Sylvia Rivera's, the Crystal LaBeijas, the Mary Jones and Frances Thompson's all the way back in the 1800s who are documented. I connect with them and I I call on their ancestral power to get me through today. Because one of the things that I think has really informed me now as an adult is that I'm not actually creating the will here, that there have been Black, trans, and gender nonconforming folks throughout time. Mm. And it is a part of my duty to make sure that the ways that they fought to be vulnerable and authentic don't just dissipate into the ether, that it it is carried on and, and helped present it forth for a new generation. And I appreciate the work of some of my Black, trans, siblings like Tourmaline, a a brilliant filmmaker and artist, C. Riley Snorton, who is an amazing academic and thinker, who Mm -hmm. are also, you know, archiving Black trans history for the Black trans future that we're crafting. So this Black trans future that you are crafting, Mm -hmm. 
<laughs> I get the sense that you are feeling hopeful and optimistic about it. I am. You know, I believe that we will, in general, not just Black trans folks, but all of us will continue to explore the complexity of identity and the complexity of gender and all of these different things. I think we will figure out ways to expand these categories so much that they actually explode. And one of the things that I am particularly, I guess, hungry and thirsty for in these next few decades is for more and more people to understand that we're all gender nonconforming. That Mm. in essence, there is no trans experience. There is no cis experience because we have crafted some new binaries, right? When really we're all just individual colors existing in in this larger tapestry of life. And that is precisely the provocative brilliance that I think we need to end with because all of us need to spend some time reflecting on that truth that you just shared. I am just so grateful for the contribution that you continue to make um, to all of our freedom. Thank you so much and so much love for you too, my sister. Raquel Willis is a Black trans rights activist and writer. For a list of all the legendary Black trans folks she name-checked in our conversation, take a look at our show notes or the Meteor's Instagram. Back in 1926, historian Carter G. Woodson and others created Negro History Week. That, of course, eventually became Black History Month. And ever since, Black folks have been rightfully taking our place in the canon of American history and working to expand the list of Black heroes the world celebrates. For years, we have recycled the same list of like 10 people. But as Raquel reminds us, there are so many who've been left out. You've probably heard of Sojourner Truth, but had you heard of Mary Jones or Frances Thompson? They're two of the ancestors Raquel referred to. Mary was a Black trans sex worker who lived openly in New York all the way back in the 1830s. And Frances was a formerly enslaved Black trans woman, an anti-rape activist who testified before a congressional committee that investigated the Memphis riots of 1866. So many of our people were burning the light of freedom before it was trendy, long before the rest of us caught on. Regular people doing extraordinary things. Regular people doing ordinary things that just happen to be revolutionary because of who they are. We have the chance right now to actually honor all the people who have and are still making Black history, whether they are famous or not. So let's give them their flowers. We want to know, who are you celebrating this Black History Month? A personal ancestor? Someone from the past who you felt a deep connection to? A present-day freedom fighter? Let us know and send us your voice memos to undistracted at wearethemeteor.com. Let's expand the list. And while we're at it, redefine what a hero is. Well, that's it for today, but never for tomorrow. 
Undistracted is a production of The Meteor and Pineapple Street Studios. Our lead producer is Rachel Matlow. Our associate producer is Taylor Hosking. Thanks also to Treasure Brooks, Grace Chen, and Hannes Brown. Our executive producers at The Meteor are Cindy Levy and myself, and our executive producers at Pineapple are Jenna Weiss-Berman and Max Linsky. You can follow me at Miss Getty on all social media and our team at The Meteor. Subscribe to Undistracted and rate and review us, y'all, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you check out your favorite podcasts. And shout out to Apple for putting us on the new and noteworthy list and Spotify for listing our America Ferreira episode as one of the best of the week. We're grateful. Thanks, y'all, for listening. Thanks for being and thanks for doing. I'm Brittany Packnett Cunningham. Let's go get free. <laughs>